Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Thursday, everybody, and welcome to episode 42 of The Snyder Cut. I am your host, Jeff Snyder, senior film reporter at Collider, and it's Comic-Con Day, guys. Hallelujah. I've never been to Comic-Con. This year, obviously, Comic-Con looking uh, very different. It's Comic-Con at home, but that means that we all get to participate. We don't all have to be crammed into Hall H. We're in a long line waiting to get inside of Hall H down in San Diego. Uh, they're just bringing everything to you. And I know Collider has a bunch of exciting panels that we did. We did a, a 15th anniversary Constantine panel uh, with Keanu Reeves, no less. We did, I think Steve did one, uh, Directors on Directing. And he got like Robert Rodriguez, Joseph Kosinski, uh, some some very cool people. So yeah, stay tuned to everything that uh, that Collider's got coming up. But yeah, it's just, it's just not my bag. Same thing with the Bad Batch last week. You guys know what I'm into. I'm not here to talk about, uh, you know, the, 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 the top stuff that's trending. Because I just don't care. I just don't. So where should we start? Um, I think, let's, you know what, let's start with the big news from last week, which was Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans teaming up for The Gray Man at Netflix. This is going to be a $200 million movie. So, you know, Deadline loves to proclaim this is the most this, the most that. This may be the most that Netflix has ever greenlit a film at. I mean, probably maybe a little bit higher than Six Underground, which was just, you know, Ryan, Ryan Reynolds. You didn't have two Ryan Reynoldses, as you do here with Gosling and uh, Chris Evans. But, you know, so much of this $200 million budget is going to be going to, you know, paying their salaries and, uh, you know, buying out their back ends and stuff. Because I imagine that Gosling and Chris Evans probably make around $10 million, $12 million a movie or so. I don't think that either of them are really $20 million guys, but you know, they could be making 10 or 12. And then when you buy out, you know, maybe that buyout's five, maybe it's eight. So you're, you're basically around 20, maybe more for each of them. Um, and then you got the Russos to pay. Uh, so, you know, this is not coming cheap. This project is not coming cheap. And, and it's also, it's not the kind of movie you need a $200 million production budget for. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a CIA thriller. It's two guys. Yeah, there's going to be, you know, big global action. It's going to, you know, hop around um, all over. But I don't know that you're going to have like crazy visual effects like Inception or uh, or what's the fuck? Damn it. You know, I, I don't think it's that kind of a movie. Uh, I like these guys together a lot. I mean, um, Gosling and Evans is a pairing I can definitely get behind. And I think that Gosling in particular is somebody who could stand to work with the Russo brothers right now. You know, he, he also has Wolfman and, um, and Project Hail Mary, which he's doing with Lord Miller. So he's got, you know, a lot of, of big projects. I think we're going to talk about him later in the show. I, th- I think that's a mailbag question. So we'll save it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I dig the gray man. This started out as a Brad Pitt vehicle with James Gray. Like, how do you go from James Gray to the Russo brothers? Obviously, the scale of the project has has expanded some, you could say. 
And I think if they brought in the Captain America guys, Marcus and McFeely, to uh, polish up the script. Um, at one point, Sony was going to do this with Charlize. Like, you know, that, that's how you can tell this is a badass action movie because they had Charlize interested for a little while. Um, and and now, now they're just gender flipping it back. So uh, the gray man is a man again. And it is Ryan Gosling and, and Chris Evans will be the, the, CIA, the CIA agent sort of on, on the, the hunt for him. They, they're thinking franchise with this. You know, I don't know if it lends itself to this, if it's a contained story or they'll be able to, to sort of follow the further adventures of Ryan Gosling's character. I don't know if Chris Evans survives this first film or if he ends up teaming up with him or what. But, uh, you know, it, it sounds like a good play by Netflix. I mean, I don't know what they spent on Six Underground. It was probably $175, $180 million. And that was Ryan Reynolds and Michael Bay, and it was atrocious. So if you can get something from the Russo brothers with, uh, you know, guys like Chris Evans and, and Gosling, who, you know, quite frankly, are just a little bit better actors than, than Ryan Reynolds. No offense. No offense, Ry Guy. This, this this could definitely pay off for, for Netflix. Um, and while we're talking about Chris Evans, I just want to say, you know, he made this video for this little boy who, who uh, threw himself in the path of like a, a vicious pit bull who was like going to go attack his, his little sister. And this boy's face got chewed up. Like he did some damage, um, but he was very, very brave. And, and it was a truly heroic thing that he did for his sister. And I thought, you know, Chris Evans, the way that he spoke to this kid and made him feel like an actual hero. And I know that other people jumped on, on the bandwagon after that, but Chris Evans was the video that, that I saw. And it really just, it, it, he's a good guy, that, that Chris Evans. That nice Sudbury boy. Um, Netflix also ponying up for Julia and Denzel Washington. They're going to team on Leave the World Behind. Now, th this is big because I don't think either of them have ever done like a streaming movie. Julia obviously did, you know, Homecoming, the Amazon series, but no, that was a series. This is a movie. It's going to reunite her and uh, her Pelican Brief co-star, Denzel Washington, who I never really thought. I mean, I know he's got, uh, I think it's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom for Netflix. He, he's, he was doing those kinds of, of movies. I didn't think he would actually go do this kind of a movie. Um, but I like the premise. And, and it was weird because when I was writing this one up, it's all about the power going out and you know phones internet not working and and i had the exact same happen uh exact same thing happened to me while i was in the middle of the story uh, we had a power outage here in in massachusetts and it took about an hour to get back up um so basically julia and her husband and her kids have rented this really nice airbnb which is owned by denzel and his family and so there's a blackout in the city forcing denzel and his family to come back to their their country home and they sort of interrupt uh, this white family's vacation. And, you know, stuff goes on in this, this beautiful cabin. Um, you know, there, there's themes of race and class and, and, and just a lot of tensions. And all around them, you know, I think they're just like oblivious to the craziness that's happening outside of the home. Like there's these sonic booms that are unexplained. There's just a lot of weird stuff happening. Uh, but everyone's so you know, focused on, on the, uh, the drama in front of them that, that they just have blinders on to everything else. So I think that's going to be really interesting to see Sam Eshmael explore that. He's not necessarily directing yet. He's just adapting this upcoming novel. But uh, this is not the kind of thing that Julian Denzel do. Um, 
and it, and it still sounds like it's a drama with some really great, like, juicy roles for actors, but it also strikes me, at least from the description, as a genre film, and you don't see Denzel making too many genre films. I mean, uh, I guess he did um, Falling, but I don't know. It's just, just rare, and, and again, these two have been talking about working together again for the last 25 years, so it's interesting that, that it happened on, on this project and that Netflix uh, outbid everybody for it. I don't know if Julia Roberts is, is quite the same movie star that she used to be, um, but there, listen, she still has something that no one else has. You know, she can still absolutely melt me with that smile in the same way, you know, Brad Pitt or George Clooney could, could melt women with, with a, a, just one look, you know? Um, so that, that is interesting. Um, Robin Tug getting refashioned as a series by new Re- Regency from Our Lady J. And so I wanted to talk about this because I thought it was pretty interesting because I, I was definitely... One of the people, uh, and listen, Scarlett Johansson didn't do herself any favors in, in terms of the, the follow-up statements that she made when all this drama was happening. Uh, but I was, you know, as we talked about with the Halle Berry Project, I was one of those people who, who thought this was a, a great story about, uh, I think it's Dante Tex Gill, that was the name. Um, and, you know, it was this great trans story. And Scarlett Johansson was going to do it. New Regency was excited about the, uh, uh, excited about the head director. Um, and, you know, th- then there was all this outrage, you know, th- because they want trans people to play trans roles. And I get it. But I also don't know that it works right now as far as financing a film, particularly a film that's going to be 30 or $40 million. Uh, so what New Regency did was, the, and, and I think you have to hand it to me, like, it's just that it, it's the financials. The financials don't really work if that's a movie. However, it's a great story. Great stories are being told on television all the time. So they refashion it as a TV series. And Our Lady J, who is a trans performer, is going to be, you know, writing the script. Um, you know, th- there's no star attached, although the producers have come out and said that they want to cast a trans performer. And listen, I think that's great. I think this is great news all around. I was very, very excited by that uh, Our Lady J announcement. Um but it, it sort of proved the point where it's like those stories, the place for those stories right now, just right now is television. Uh, and maybe whoever they cast in Rub and Tug, maybe Rub and Tug makes them a star. And then maybe the next trans movie, well, you know, maybe it's this Halle Berry movie. Maybe then, you know, whoever this trans star is, maybe they be, you know, blossom and, and go on to become a, a, a true blue movie star. But it, it's just the, the, Financials are completely different with a TV series and a movie. Um, with a TV series, you're ma- you're not necessarily making your money off of how many pe- how many people are going to tune into it. Although that can certainly help ad rates, you know, later in the season or something. But you know, people you, you're going to be selling ad the ad time. You know, there's going to be commercials, so you, it, it's just not the same model as trying to do an, an indie movie. You know, I. I $30 million, which is what I think Deadline said the budget was. Um, so again, I just think it's important to keep that in mind. When, when, when straight actors take on trans roles in movies, uh, I, I understand why people get, you know, bent out of shape and, and, uh, and things like that. But it just, it, you know, financially, we're just not at that point right now where as a studio executive, I would feel comfortable betting $30, $40 million on top of a marketing spend. You have to, you know, keep that in mind. TV spend is, is going to be very different than, than a movie spend. Um, 
yeah, I, I just think TV, you know, that, that's the place for these things right now. Um, but great to see that happening. And, and, and very cool that they got out, out there, Our Lady J. Uh, Noah Centennial signing on to star in Black Adam. I think he's going to be playing Adam Smasher. A-T-O-M, not Adam, like, uh, like The Rock. Um, what do I think about this? Don't love it. Don't love it. I know Noah Centennial is very hot right now. Uh, you know, from what I've seen of him, he looks like kind of generic, good-looking guy who, you know, ha- has a, a hot streak, a, a little run for a few years, but then kind of tails off in, into the, the distance. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong. You know, I, I don't mean to judge the kid based on, like, one or two things that I've, I've seen from him. Uh, I just don't know. Yeah, I don't know how big Adam Smasher is. I don't know if he's... I don't even know what the hell Black Adam is. I'll be honest. I, he's the hero, but he's a villain. Is he an anti-hero? Is, uh, what, what, is there a villain in this movie? Is Adam Smasher the good guy? Is he, does he team up with Black Adam? I have absolutely no fucking idea because, frankly, and, and we're going to see this a lot more, um, I don't know who these characters are. I mean, we're not dealing with Batman and Superman and Iron Man and Spider-Man anymore. We're now... You've got Marvel's The Eternals and rumors this week about the Illuminati. Like, I don't know what Marvel's The Illuminati is. And and frankly, I I think that if they're just going to be, you know, I I know Guardians of the Galaxy was one thing. That that was something where I was like, well, what is this? And it's a raccoon and a tree and is it going to work? And yeah, it worked. And a lot of that was finding the right filmmaker. Some of these projects, though, I'm just like... This is like the B or C team for, for Marvel or for DC. And I'm not saying that's what Black Adam or Adam Smasher is. I just, I'm not familiar with the lore and, and I'm not really eager to go look it up either. Like I'll see the movie when it comes out. That's about as far as it goes. Uh, and the Black Adam screenwriter, Adam Zizdikiel, I don't know how to pronounce that. It's just a whole bunch of Z's and Y's together. Um, he's going to be making his directorial debut with his let's have kids uh movie which i believe is is part of a new female comedy division set up at mrc which is very exciting in fact you know i wrote a teen sex comedy back in college it was called uh the first it was called going 40 miles per hour in a jet which is not a good title um i changed it to Montreal because when you're on the east coast and you're grown up uh, and you're maybe not quite 21, but you're over 18, people go to Montreal to go party and, and get wasted. And so I named it Montreal. However, Montreal, not a great title either. So I switched it to Vancouver, and I pushed it from the East Coast to the West Coast. So it was called Vancouver. But the point of all this is that you know, it's a teen sex comedy and, and sex comedies are in a weird place. Cause it's like, do we really want to watch four guys in American pie make a pact to lose their virginity before the end of high school and, and trick women into sleeping with them or whatever it is. You know, if you just look back at Porky's revenge of the nerds, a lot of, you know, teen sex comedies, college sex comedies that they're, they're problematic now through, through the 2020 lens. And so it's a tough genre to crack. So what I was going to do is actually change this, the, the three guys, in this from, you know, man Goover, I want to change it to, to uh, three female leads. I just feel like, and, and I sort of had that idea after just watching book smart. I, I was like, I don't, you know, there's a million of these kinds of movies featuring, you know, horny young guys, but if you could, and I've always 
I've always thought I did a good job writing women. That's what my school teachers always uh, said, that I had a decent ear for dialogue. So this female comedy division at MRC, I really like it. I, I Part of me wants to, uh, you know, re- rewrite my old college script and, and, you know, gender flip the leads. I think that could be really interesting. Maybe even putting in a, a trans character because um, it's about three, three people who, who take a road trip to Canada to sort of avoid the responsibilities waiting for them uh, back in the States. Um, so yeah, very, very cool about that female comedy division. It's going to be run by Becky Slavater. Um, what else do we got this week? We've got a ton of stuff. Dave, I mean, so the Dave Franco is like, let's talk about the rental and Dave Franco and Vanilla Ice. So, you know, Dave Franco, there was, I looked into this last summer that he was going to, uh, you know, star in a Vanilla Ice biopic called To the Extreme. He's now been talking about that a little bit more in interviews for the rental. I can totally see it. I, I think Dave Franco does remind me of, of Vanilla Ice a little bit, and I can see him having that same kind of uh, attitude. Um, man, I was, just a, I was just a kid when, when Vanilla Ice was hot. I really liked him in That's My Boy, the Adam Sandler movie. Um, I can't – like, I, I don't listen to any Vanilla Ice. There's no Vanilla Ice on my phone or whatever. I don't know if he's a big enough musician to do like a proper biopic, but then again, you know, was Tommy Wiseau a big enough filmmaker to do a proper biopic with the disaster artist? That, that is, I think what, what is going to be Dave's model for this movie. Um, and you know, if they keep the budget down, I could see it working as like a VOD, as a VOD thing. I just, it's about his like, basically him going from selling cars to becoming this nineties, early nineties phenomenon. I just, I don't know. Are we going to do this for everybody? Are new kids on the block going to get a movie? Uh, it, it seems a little silly to me, but whatever. Dave Franco, he's cool in my book. He just did uh, the rental, which is available on VOD. I think starting tomorrow. Um, I, I liked it. I thought it was, I thought I liked it, but I didn't love it. It, it's not terribly, it doesn't do anything new. And he's got some good actors here, like Dan Stevens, Jeremy Allen White. And he kind of doesn't use them to their full potential. Sheila Vand was good too. Um, so yeah, it's Alison Brie, Sheila Vand, Dan Stevens, Jeremy Allen White. They, they, they rent this Airbnb. The, the owner of the Airbnb is creepy. It's Toby Huss from, from The Invitation. He was the cult leader. And it's shot well enough. It's dark, though. It's, it, it's definitely a little tough to see things. Um, I like the ending. You know, it's, there's a lot about surveillance and, you know, the sort of... Um, the, so, there, you know, there's two couples, but ah, I won't spoil anything. Never mind. Um, I just... It was a little disappointing. It, 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 like... I guess it's, I'm, I'm torn between saying I liked it and saying I'm disappointed because I know that he had all kinds of resources. He's got a beautiful, you know, vacation home in a, in a remote, remote location. Um, I just didn't know how much tension there was, you know, like, or maybe it was just too simplistic. Maybe it needed a, a twist or a turn here and there. I mean, it almost functions more as like a mumblecore drama thriller than like a real home invasion genre movie um but stay you know i i, I did like the credits i, I liked uh, the end credits and, and there's some action that takes place over those so do i think it's worth a rental sure it's worth a rental but am i going to give it a jeff snyder guarantee i'm afraid i can't do that dave franco 
In fact, I've been bummed by a bunch of uh, genre movies of late, and, and I'm trying to think of like what I can talk about, what I can't. Uh, I believe Amulet and Relic are both fair game. Those have been re- uh, reviewed. Yeah, didn't didn't love them. Relic, I think, maybe worked for me a little bit better, only because the end had a real impact. Um, and that's from Natalie Erica James. It's it's Emily Mortimer, Bella Heathcote. And uh, I think it's Robin Niven. Um, so three generations of, of women, and and the oldest one, the grandmother, has dementia. And so the house sort of becomes a metaphor for her dementia. And you know, hallways are, are, are collapsing and uh, changing. You know, much like the hallways of her mind. Like she's, and so you know, her mind is is rotting, but her her body, her sh- you know, her her vessel, her shell is also rotting. Uh, and you know, by the end of this, like it, it ends on a, on a tender note, and I like the emotion that it, that it elicited from me. Um, but yeah, the first hour of this movie, it's just too slow a burn. Uh, and, and believe me, we're gonna get to slow burns in a second. Um, but yeah, it, it just it didn't really work for me, despite a game Emily Mortimer performance. The same thing goes for Amulet. This is another. Uh, female-directed film um, from, from Ramla Gerai, the actress from Atonement. And it's like, yeah, this refugee, he, he's staying in this house with these two women. One of them is Carla Jury. Her mother is, like, locked upstairs. Right, there's a nun with a... Or not a nun, but this... Um, maybe she is a nun. I don't even know. Melda Staunton plays uh, this other woman in the house. This is not a great review, guys. I'm all over the place. I can barely remember this movie. Um, basically, mom upstairs is like possessed by some kind of demon, and, and the daughter's like looking after her. And you know, eventually, that the guy's going to become a, a, a demon too. He's going to find out what's upstairs, and he's going to sort of take its place or whatever. I mean, it, it just didn't do it for me. Sorry, I, and I know everybody's you know throwing kudos at these movies there's another movie that that we got to talk about it's called she dies tomorrow from amy simons and it has a hundred percent rating on rotten tomatoes a hundred percent and it's only from five or six reviews you know a friend of collider matt donato loved it i wish that i saw what critics are seeing in this movie because i thought it was maybe the worst movie i've seen all year um amy simons just spending way too much time with, uh, I think she was an upstream color, right? She's just spending too much time with, with that dude. Um, nothing happens in this movie. It's just a big nothing burger of a movie. It is so slow and not scary and just boring. I just, and they cut a good trailer for it. Like I was interested. It's a good idea that fear is contagious and everybody starts to think, everybody starts grappling with their mortality. And are they going to die tomorrow? And it's, it's, it's silly. I just don't know who like writes this stuff and is like, I want to go make a movie with this. And, and here's, I'm going to send the script to my friends. Oh, and they liked it. And now they've agreed to be in it. Like, I don't understand. I don't understand things like this. Um, so yeah, oh for three on, on the female directed genre front. I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I really wanted to like these movies, but I gotta be honest. I did not. Um, I watched the silencing that is embargoed. I can't really talk about that. That's Nikolai Costa Waldo, Annabelle Wallace movie. Um, yeah, under embargo, but predictable. 
I watched The Binge. That is under embargo. That's a Hulu comedy. Like, it's like The Purge. You know, there's one, uh, basically drugs and alcohol have been outlawed, except for one night a year. Um, this is a movie that just takes, you know, way too long to get into its premise. It, there, there's a 20-minute stretch where I thought it really worked, but... Yeah, that was disappointing. I mean, Apple's, I've been watching Ted Lasso and Apple, the Jason Sudeikis series. Um, I'll be talking more about that when I can. Same with We Hunt Together. I am proceeding further with that Showtime show. That was like a, a BBC show that they picked up. God, what else was there that I watched this week that I can even talk about? Hoops is another thing. Everything's under embargo, man. It's like, I wish they all, it's like, I like seeing these things early, but part of me also wishes like, if you're not going to let me talk about them or you're going to make me wait until the, the week of release, like, I'm just going to forget it. I watched the movie, you know, three weeks ago. I, I don't freaking remember. I'm seeing so much stuff. So uh, here's what I'll say about Hoops and Ted Lasso. These are two shows about very different coaches, right? Uh, Ted Lasso is a soccer coach. Uh, Jake Johnson plays a basketball coach in Hoops. And their approaches are completely different. Jake Johnson is a foul-mouthed asshole. Ted Lasso is just a super sweet kind of Midwestern nice guy. And, yeah, one show was much better than, than the other. Uh, I, I may still write a piece about that, so I, I don't want to tip my hand quite yet. But I thought it was interesting that these two shows about, you know, sports coaches played by, you know, two pretty funny guys are coming out basically around the same time. Um... Hawkeye, a Marvel series, got some interesting directors, Bert and Birdie, who do not like their real names used in stories, apparently. Um, <laughs> they did Troop Zero, the Allison Janney, Viola Davis movie. They're going to be doing a block of episodes. Reese Thomas, who's a Saturday Night Live guy, he did uh, the John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch special. He's going to be doing a block of episodes. We still don't know... Who is in the show? Like, Haley Steinfeld was reported to be in talks to play that Kate, is it Kate Bishop? Is that the character? Um, and nobody knows if her deal made or not, because we heard that, that things may have, had, uh, may have fallen apart. But no replacement named. Renner, I think, is the only one uh, still involved at this point. And this is going to be the last of, like, the four big shows that they announced, right? Because they've got... Falcon and Winter Soldier, WandaVision, those seem the closest. And WandaVision, that's the thing. Like, so Falcon and Winter Soldier were supposed to go out in August. Then WandaVision was going to be the spring with Loki. Then they moved up WandaVision to December. But Falcon and Winter Soldier didn't make its August date. So will that go in December in place of WandaVision? Is WandaVision staying and will now go ahead of Falcon and Winter Soldier? I thought all these things sort of led into each other. So I don't, you know, I, I thought there was, they, they had to sort of be very carefully placed on the calendar, although I, I assume that, you know, post-credit sequences and things like that, that really serve as the connective tissue between a lot of these uh, Marvel series and films, uh, those could always be rearranged or whatever, reconfigured. Um, so, Okay, so Falcon and Winter Soldier, we missed August. We don't know when it's coming. It could take WandaVision's place in December. WandaVision could go back to its original uh, destination in the spring. Who knows if, if Loki started shooting yet or, or is going to be ready by the spring. Maybe that gets pushed the next summer or fall. But anyways, Hawkeye is going to be last. And then you get into the Moon Knight, Miss Marvel, and some of those other uh, shows. I can't even keep track of them all. Uh, 
Uh, and it's my job. And it's my job. Anyways, I like those directors. I, you know, I think you're going to be seeing more and more people like that, of that level, directing these kinds of shows. I mean, remember, think of who the Russos were when they were tapped to do, uh, you know, the, the Winter Soldier movie. Listen, Mar- Marvel has its process, and I don't know how integral di- directors are to it. Uh, I-, I think some movies, you know, whether it's James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy or Taika's Thor movies or uh, Ryan Coogler's Black Panther, they have a, a greater sense of, of directorial authorship than, than a lot of uh, Marvel movies. Um, what else? Jesus Christ. Tiff opening with the concert film American Utopia about David Byrne from Spike Lee. I mean, that, that's not encouraging. The uh, Netflix concert film is going to be opening to the Toronto International Film Festival. That's, that's the best we got. That, uh, not, not good. Um, I mean, at this point, I, I don't understand why the festivals don't just take a year off, you know, like come back stronger in 2021. I don't really understand expending all this energy on digital festivals that'll be for a couple thousand people it's just i don't know i i just don't see it i i don't i'm not getting the excitement and and i know all these festivals are supposed to be partnered with each other and stuff i but are they really going to give me access to all these you know titles via online screeners i'd be very skeptical about that Man, it's just weird, man. This whole fucking year sucks. This pandemic is wreaking havoc on everything. Um, Tony K making a racial justice drama civil. Uh, listen, I could care less about the movie. What's exciting though is Tony K coming back to direct. This guy has been on the sidelines for I can't even tell you how long. I think the last movie he did, I don't even know if it got a proper release. It just kind of like oozed out <laughs> into the ether. Um, but American History X stands as one of the greatest movies of of the 90s. I mean, I, I watched 25th Hour, as a matter of fact, last night. So we're big Ed Norton fans in this household. And it just, God, it made me think about how great an actor this guy was. For, for, you know, there's a stretch from the mid-90s to maybe the, the, the mid-2000s where he was just fucking untouchable, just churning out great perform- one great performance after another. Um, and 25th Hour was good. Uh, it holds up, but it, I, I don't know if it was as great as I remember it. Um, it's very talky. It's a little long. It has all, like, the, the, the problems, the strengths and weaknesses of basically every Spike Lee movie. Like, you know, the things that are special about it, like that three-minute mirror monologue, that is classic Spike. Um, but at the same time, there are also so many spikeisms where it's like, oh, just get rid of this, get rid of that, like cut this down. The fact that it's 15 minutes too long, it's just, he, he can't get out of his own way, Spike Lee, even though 25th Hour is certainly one of his better movies. The Old Guard brought in 70 or 72 million viewers. I don't know if that's like, that's how many people have seen it so far or how many people are projected to see it over the first four weeks. It seems like that statistic keeps changing, you know? Um, I am still, I guess I'm counted as one of them because I watched more than two minutes, but I'm in the same place that I was last week. I have not gone back to finish the old guard. I promise I will, you know, it seems entertaining enough, but I I just didn't, I just didn't love it. Again, 
another female directed movie. May, I, I'm sure it's all just these are coincidences, but it's like I don't know. It, it, there's something missing from that one for me. Uh, Brett Haley signing on to direct the Grease prequel. He did uh, Hearts Beat Loud. He did a couple of other, like, it's funny. He started off as, like, the doing older movies, like The Hero, I'll See You in My Dreams, which had great performances from Sam Elliott and Blythe Banner. Um, but now he, he's doing more YA stuff. I think they just retitled that sort of like a rock, a rock star movie with the girl from Moana. Um, I forget what the hell it's called now, but Grease prequel. Tell me more, tell me more. What can I tell you? It is going to be based on the song Summer Lovin'. That is the title. Um, and it's, you know, about that first summer that we didn't get to see between Danny and Sandy. Here's the thing about this Grease prequel, guys. You don't have John Travolta, who's a legitimate movie star. And legitimate movie stars don't just grow on trees. So you can go try and find one, and maybe you'll get lucky. But do I anticipate them finding, you know, the next John Travolta for, for this Grease prequel? No. They're going to get some teeny bopper with a bunch of followers on Instagram and TikTok. And, like, it just – the other thing is the songs. I mean, there's the chemistry, too. It's not just having John Travolta. It was the chemistry he had with Olivia Newton-John. So not only do you need to have two good leads, they need to have chemistry as well. But the songs. It's a prequel. You can't really be singing all the great songs that, that made Grease, you know, a classic. Um, I think that was the, sort of the same problem that doomed Grease 2, which, you know, had Michelle Pfeiffer, who, of course, is a major movie star as well. But, you know, Maxwell Caulfield... Nobody talks about Grease 2, and for, for, for good reason. Um, I forget who they said is doing the music for this Grease prequel, or if they said who's doing the music, but I just think this is this is going to be an uphill battle for, for Paramount. And, and why not just create a, a modern, you know, musical drama? I, I just don't understand having to go back to the name Greece or Summer, Summer Lovin'. Like, what could that possibly mean to this film's target audience at 18? Uh, I mean, uh, maybe there are still 16, 18-year-olds who love Greece and love singing those songs, but it just seems like such a stale property. I just Why go back to this if you're Paramount, particularly the way you're just selling yourself off one, one movie at a time to, to Netflix? Like, is uh, it, is Paramount just making this movie for Netflix, essentially, because they have the rights? Maybe. Gael Garcia Bernal signing on to M. Night Shyamalan's next movie. We still have no idea what this is about. He's got a great young cast, a lot of really cool up-and-comers, but it sounds like Gael Garcia Bernal is going to be the lead. Again, I don't know what that entails. I know that I trust M. Night. Uh, I think he's a really interesting director, even when he fails. Like... excuse me, Lady in the Water, even The Happening, those are interesting failures. Um, I don't think that Knight is going to get caught up in something like that again. This is probably another low-budget movie because he's self-financing it. As he's self-financing the next couple of movies that he's making, Universal will be distributing it. I don't know. I I, I dig Gael Garcia Bernal working with M. Knight. That is pretty interesting, particularly with the supporting cast that he has lined up. Edgar Wright directing this movie Stage 13 for Steven Spielberg's Amblin Partners. It's based on a short story by Simon Rich, who's going to be adapting his own short story. Excuse me. This is about a a soundstage, Stage 13, on a Hollywood backlot that is haunted by the ghost 
of an actress from the silent film era. Uh, now, I think that's a pretty cool premise and certainly, you know, even cooler in the hands of Edgar Wright. I just don't know what the tone of this project is going to be. Is it going to be, because it, it was part of this collection uh, that Simon Rich won an award for like, you know, uh, basically a humor prize. So I don't know if it's comedic. I haven't read the short story. I don't know if, I think the playlist called it like a feel good sort of story. Uh, you know, it, it sounds, it's not like a traditional haunted house, haunted movie studio kind of thing. The director ends up meeting, the, it, it's about a struggling director who meets up with this ghost and together, you know, they, they team up to, uh, I don't know, create great art or mark, make their mark on the world, improve the world somehow. I, I don't know what that is going to entail. Um... And again, a lot of the, the, the casting will depend on who plays this ghost, who plays this director. Uh, but I'm into it. I like the idea of, of, a, of Edgar Wright working with ghosts and having it not be an all-out horror movie. Last Night in Soho, a waiting release for the spring. Um, I think it comes out in April. That is described as a psychological thriller. And that also has like a Hollywood bent to it, uh, from what I understand. Um Edgar Wright, though, signing on to a whole bunch of stuff. Like He has been busy since wrapping this last night in Soho movie. He's not sitting on his hands waiting for this thing to come out. He just he, uh, you know, signed on to direct that kidnapping thriller, The Chain, for Universal. Him and Joe Corner started a production company. They've got three uh, Netflix projects, TV projects in the works. So Edgar Wright keeping busy, and that is good to see because uh, he is a really talented filmmaker. Even if I don't love his stuff the way that a lot of people do, you know, like I, I liked, I liked the World's End and and uh, mm-hmm. Hot Fuzz more than I did Shaun of the Dead, to be honest. Sorry, just checking my messages. Um, but I really love Space. To me, Space may be the best thing Edgar Wright's ever done. And I was, I was a baby driver to guy too. I, I like that. But again, he hasn't done anything that I've loved. I actually suspect Last Night in Soho could be the first Edgar Wright movie that I really love. Uh, Grace Kaufman landing the, the lead in the sky is everywhere. The Apple A24 project. Um, Cynthia Erivo signing on to this project talent show where she's going to be playing uh, a sort of, you know, a down on her luck singer songwriter who, you know, comes back to her hometown or whatever and, and leads the, the annual youth talent show that, you know, that sounds like a decent role for Cynthia Erivo who's coming off of two, Oscar nominations for Harriet. Uh, she's got a, a bunch of interesting, exciting things in the works. Um, so that's a good get. <sighs> what else? Bridget Everett signed on to this HBO show, Somebody Somewhere. That's something I was tracking like last summer as well. I guess Jay Duplass ended up shooting a pilot. And now HBO, probably because, you know, production is the way that it is. They're like, all right, well, we're one step ahead on this somebody somewhere thing. Let's let's just go for it. And they ordered a series. Now, I love Bridget Everett. That's why I wrote this thing up. Like, I thought she was great in Patty Cakes. Uh, I couldn't really get on board with camping. That show wasn't for me. But, like, I started – I found Bridget Everett watching Inside Amy Schumer. And she's just she, – the woman is a force of nature. I liked her in Fun Mom Dinner as well. So the idea of her getting her own HBO series where she's going to be playing this larger-than-life – figure in a small town in Kansas who's just like, you know, I'm, I'm, my dreams are too big for this town. I, I think that could be pretty exciting. You know, I, I wish her the best of luck. because I, I think that there's something very unique about her. Elizabeth Moss started a production company this week. She's going to be starring in the, the first project 
is this thing Black Match? I don't know if she's starring in it or if she's just producing it. I need to read that article more more uh, closely. The Crown not going to be resuming filming until next June, which means it's not going to be returning to Netflix until 2022. Again, I don't care. I don't watch The Crown, but I know it is very popular with uh, a lot of discerning television fans of, of good taste. So I had to mention it because I know that's what you, all you guys are. Perry Mason got renewed. I'm excited about that one. This Again, that's a show that I started. I wasn't really feeling it. I stuck with it, and it it, uh, it lived up to expectations. I, I did end up really liking Perry Mason. I think we've got a few more episodes left uh, before that wraps up season one on HBO. And I, I didn't necessarily believe them, uh, the network, when they said that this is not a limited series, because it certainly felt like one. I didn't know that, that they would just automatically bring it back, but it debuted really well. I think it got, you know, the most – uh, the, the biggest eyes that they've had in two years for, for a new show, um, even bigger than Watchmen. So, uh, yeah, you know, they're bringing back Perry Mason for, for season two, and there's, I'm sure, going to be some changes to the cast and, and the team. Um, Chris Chalk, in particular, was really good. I, I, I hope he gets even more screen time in season two. Um, yeah. Check out Perry Mason if, if, if you've been reluctant, because uh, that one, I, I think, will surprise you. Is there a Lando Calrissian series in the works? That is the word from one of these Star Wars sites. There's a million of them. They're dropping blah, uh, you know, rumors all the time. I didn't get any word back from Disney uh, when I looked into it. And that typically means, I hate to say it, guys, typically means it's legit. I mean, if it wasn't real, Disney would likely issue some court of some kind of denial on background which we would have been happy to run the fact that i didn't hear back from anybody at the studio makes me think it's real i also wonder like i don't know what the deal is with donald glover and atlanta um i'm sure that show is coming back for another season but i wonder if he's just sort of getting tired of sort you know having to do everything you know be the writer the executive producer like you know do, running everything on that show. Maybe he just wants to be an actor again and, and show up and read the lines, uh, which is what I imagine would happen with Lando. I don't think this is something that he would be show running or anything like that. I don't think that he had a great experience with that animated Deadpool series. Um, so yeah, we, you know, we'll see if these Lando rumors come to fruition. I think it's a, it'd be a good move by Disney Plus, considering he was the breakout character from Solo, and everybody loves Donald Glover and that kind of thing. You know, if they if they could get him for a limited series, that could be really fun, and you could have you know a lot more black characters too. Um, you know, which I, I I think are in short supply on, you know, just in the Star Wars universe in general, and and more likely on Disney Plus in general. Um. And I am just with, you know, more networks and studios committing to uh, black fronted entertainment. Uh, I think Lando, a Lando show is totally the, the way to go if they can convince Donald Glover to actually do it. And they may just have somebody writing it for him, you know, maybe then they'll present him with a script and, uh, you know, see if he goes for it. They could always recast that role too. But I mean, I think Donald Glover did a really good job as Lando and they should try to hold on to him. Where the Crawdads Sing, Reese Witherspoon, uh, you know, gearing up her, Adaptation of that best-selling murder mystery. Vicki Jensen signing on to direct Spellbound, which is a Skydance animation project. It's it, it sounds a bit like a female Harry Potter, you know, like a, a young girl going into this world of, of magic. Vicki Jensen, one of the co-directors of Shrek, 
uh, has, just has a really talented team behind her on that. A lot of um, women involved in the project, which is encouraging because Skydance Animation, co-run by John Lasseter, and I believe Holly Edwards, John Lasseter, you know, at Pixar, hailed as this creative genius, but at the same time, sort of made it difficult for women to advance and, and to rise through the ranks. Like, he just kind of stifled their careers or, you know, of anybody who sort of wasn't going along with some of his advances. And so I know that, that, that there were a lot of people, uh, you know, outraged that, that John Lasseter was going to be running a, an animation division. And again, you know, his kind of genius doesn't grow on trees, but it also doesn't just give him license to do whatever he wants and it doesn't excuse his behavior. So I felt like I had to note it at the bottom of our story. But at the same time, you know, you have to give the guy credit whether this was his call or, or not, but he, he's clearly using his position to give jobs to some really talented women, um, at least on, on, on this project. And I believe Luck is also directed by a, a, a woman. So, you know, I think he's trying to atone for some of the mistakes that he made and, and uh, you know, advan advance some female filmmakers' careers. And uh, Spellbound sounds like a, a promising you know, mid-tier animated movie. It's not going to be Pixar or Minions or How to Train Your Dragon, but it could be on that that next, you know, Angry Birds movie tier, um, which, you know, which is probably the, the sweet spot for uh, Paramount and Skydance. Um, Netflix re revealed a release date for Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7, and Vanity Fair did a whole big photo spread. I thought that was, you know, like, I'm looking forward to that movie. I think that's a great story with an excellent cast that they've assembled. Plus, it's Sorkin. I mean, shit. I, I, I'd listen. If he wrote the phone book, I'd listen to any actors read it. He's just, uh, there's a reason he is Hollywood's top paid screenwriter. Uh, the images all look really cool. I really liked um, Jeremy Strong, right, as Jerry Rubin and, and Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, yeah, like, I like a good courtroom drama and it's been a while since we've had one because they don't, they don't, you know, they don't really make that much money at the box office anymore. Maybe that's why Paramount decided to flip this to Netflix. Um, but I, I was encouraged by the images and, and uh, yeah, that's going to be coming out in October. So that Netflix calendar is starting to fill up. They're starting to date these big prestige movies. You've got Antonio Campos's the devil all the time coming out in September. Now this in October, I think Mank is also slated for October, although it doesn't have a firm date yet. Um, but yeah, Netflix has just an embarrassment of riches on the awards contender front. So, you know, whatever is not data for September and October, you can bet is going to be in Netflix or in November and December, unless I wonder if Netflix is going to hold some of this stuff to come in late in the game in January and February. That is what is kind of very interesting to me with the Academy, you know, expanding the calendar and everything uh, since the Oscars won't be until April, the deadline is now end of February rather than, than the end of December. So everything that we think that we know, for instance, like uh, this Jennifer Hudson, Aretha Franklin movie, Respect, that was going to be a platform release over Christmas that it could qualify for the Oscars and then it would go out wide in January. Now it's saying, fuck the platform. We don't even need that. Let's just go wide over MLK weekend. You know, a really uh, a strong, strong black movie um, about a, a black icon, Aretha Franklin. And uh, I think that's a great time for it. And now, you know, you don't need the holiday corridor. So you don't need to have seven or eight blockbusters and seven or eight indie movies opening up on between December 20th and December 25th, like there always are. 
uh, that, you know, I'm just saying, like when we think of, it, it could totally change our idea of what a January or February release is. Um, and I wonder if the Academy will stick to it. You know, I had drinks last night. It was off the record. It wasn't drinks. It was a little virtual Zoom meeting as, as we're, you know, meeting right now. But I uh, met up with two of the folks from XTR, which is a documentary production company that is sort of aiming to be the A24 of the indie doc world. Uh, they have The Fight coming up. Um, they have Feels Good Man, that, that Pepe the Frog one. They have a movie, Mucho Mucho Amor, on Netflix right now. They, they've got, and they're, and they're right, and they're producing the Magic Johnson documentaries. They have a lot of exciting irons in the fire, and it was just a very interesting chat. You know, it was off the record, so I don't want to relay too much of what we got into, but when you think about it, you know, think of, like, the big filmmakers or documentarians that, that we're all aware of, Morgan Spurlock or, you know, who had Warrior Poets or Michael Moore, or just, you know, Errol Morse. Um, do, these documentaries, we associate them with filmmakers, right? And, and you know, the, these filmmakers can take one, two, three years of their lives on these projects. So you're only getting a movie from them every few years. There's no sort of centralized hub. There's, there's no Miramax for documentaries, you know, who can be in business with Michael Moore, Errol Morris, you know, Morgan Spurlock all at once. And so, you know, these guys have four or five, you know, of the larger documentaries coming out this year. It's a really good slate. And I think that they have a very bright future, like just because they're not tied into any one kind of movie or any one filmmaker you know like warrior poets they were there to do what morgan spurlock wants to do xtr can service the creative visions of a whole bunch of different documentary filmmakers and they can do political stuff they can do hybrid stuff you know where it's a hybrid uh, live action animation like feels good man is it, it reminded me a lot of the devil and daniel johnston in that way uh and even crime or or sports documentaries as we saw you know the michael jordan thing just absolutely took off going to see a lot more sports documentaries and Maddie Johnson that's one of the biggest ones that there is um so again it was just a very uh cool talk with with those folks and I, and I wish them the best of luck and uh, I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about XTR in uh, in the coming months I think at this point you know we're getting down to the end of the show it's time for tenet I can't believe I didn't lead with this this really should have been the top story Tenet has been pulled from release indefinitely. It's also coming out imminently, but there is no new release date yet because at this point they're like, well, why do we just keep assigning this thing release dates? Um, it seems, so, so they're ripping up the modern day distribution playbook here, and that is the way to go. They are going to be rolling out the movie overseas first. And it's like, America, if you want Tenet, you want to watch a new Christopher Nolan movie, get your shit together because you still, you're still seeing millions of people that thousands of people out at the beaches. No, nobody's wearing a mask. Just, you know, there are parts of this country where nobody's taking anything seriously. Uh, and, and the rest of the world has gotten things under control. So they are going to be able to open Tenet. Um, and it may even open in America outside of the major markets, like New York and Los Angeles. Like, okay, if you're not ready to open, why should, you know, the people in Massachusetts, for example, why should our theaters not be allowed to open, you know, I know, I know it's because, well, there wouldn't be any studio product, but now the studios are saying we may just need to get these movies. 
it's out there. Um, now, John Stanky, the head of Warner Media, he sort of said there's not going to be any like VOD release for Ten or for Wonder Woman 1984. Um, and I don't think that there would be for The Conjuring 3. They ended up just moving The Conjuring 3, and, and Tenet is, there's speculation that Tenet will end up taking The Conjuring 3's release date in, in mid-September, because then you have Wonder Woman in October, and that would obviously be the next destination for it. Maybe you'd move Wonder Woman to December with Dune. Um, but yeah, again, anyone who thinks that Tenet or Wonder Woman were ever going to VOD, it makes no sense because again, financially, it just doesn't it doesn't work. There aren't enough people who would rent a movie on VOD to make up for a two hundred million dollars plus whatever money they spent on marketing campaigns. It's not going to go to HBO Max because they just can't sign up like that many subscribers. You know, even if you got, I don't even like. What if you got twenty, thirty million subscribers at, at, at five, six bucks a head? I mean, I guess HBO Max is more than that, but how many people are, how many of those 20 or 30 million people already have HBO Max via HBO? I, I just, I don't even fucking know how it works. There's a zillion, you know, free, I, I have a free year via AT&T. So you can't just drop Tenet on a streaming service like that. Not to mention Chris Nolan would absolutely lose his fucking mind. But anyways, Conjuring 3 got delayed as well as part of this. Uh, and by the way, Warner Brothers sending out a fucking, like, 10-paragraph email to select reporters, nine paragraphs of which were off the record. You don't, you can't just, like, this is what's amazing to me about all of it. Like, you are a publicity professional. You're a comms professional. In what universe... Did they teach you that you can just say this is off the record? That's not what off the record is. And it it really is astounding to me as a reporter, the people who don't understand what off the record is and is not. Off the record is an agreement where the person who wants to go off the record says, hey, can we go off the record for a second or about this or that? Or, hey, this whole thing is is off the record. Is that cool? And the reporter has to agree. So you don't just tell a reporter this is off the record because it's that that's just not how it works. I would love to see Hollywood's publicity uh, executives fucking understand that. Um, so anyways, it was just a whole bunch of stuff about how they wish the people were being more fair about theaters and, and Warner Brothers, you know, they're in a tight spot. They are like, I, I appreciate the, the, the position that Warner Brothers is in right now with Tenet, but Universal and Sony would have been in the same position if they were playing the same stupid game of chicken that Warner Brothers was. Instead, Universal and Sony just decided to push all the blockbusters to next summer, knowing, like, it didn't take a genius, didn't take a fucking rocket scientist to know that we'd still be battling this pandemic in August. I don't know why Warner Brothers didn't just fucking do that from the start. Like, I I, I still don't understand. Like, it's all in service of trying to be first and, and trying to like make a buck when there's no other big movies out there in, in theaters and it's it's silly to me it, it is it is really putting lives in in danger and i i just don't know understand why tenant doesn't get pushed to next may like yeah maybe it, it it creates a domino effect for a whole bunch of other blockbusters including warner brothers own movies but tough tough shit you know yeah if you have to upset a few filmmakers, it's better than just killing like a, a percentage of your audience, potentially killing them. 
So Bill and Ted just released a new trailer today, and they announced that they're going PBOD in September. So that's going to be a $20 rental, same as King of Staten Island and Invisible Man and The Hunt and all these other things. And, and again, that makes sense for a movie like Bill and Ted because it costs, what, 20, 30, 40, 50 million tops? It didn't cost $200 million like ten. So, uh, you know, that makes sense for Bill and Ted 3. Um, and it's still going to be coming out in select theaters, whichever ones are open. But at least this way, you know, the, oh, fuck, I'm getting worked up. Getting worked up about the tenet uh, of it all. Um, AMC, meanwhile, has, has delayed its, uh, its reopening to mid-August. Again, you got theaters staffed by 17-year-olds. I'm not going to a theater at all anytime soon maybe a private screening room back in LA uh, where they you know can, can can clean it better and more thoroughly and stuff like that God. HBO Max all the Harry Potters are leaving HBO Max like what a fail what a fail HBO like that is the whole reason you get HBO Max is to just show your kids Harry Potter on repeat for the next 10 fucking years now they're already losing the Harry Potter movies how, what is the point of creating these fucking streaming services if you can't put the stuff that you own on it? I don't know where those movies are off to after this or if they're going on a shelf somewhere, if they're going in the vault. I don't understand these fucking strategies. If I'm paying 15 bucks for HBO Max, I want every fucking movie HBO has ever done, that Warner Brothers has ever done, that New Line has ever done. Why is that so difficult? Uh, we did a fun movie. Uh, I did a list last week about the 11 movies, the, the 11 highest grossing movies that were actually bombs. Google that. I think that's a pretty interesting article. I had a real fun time uh, doing the box office research on that one. And yeah, I had to call Justice League a bomb, a bomb you know, compared to uh, where, where that film should have been. I feel like there was something else I missed this week. Uh, I know we're, we're running low on time. Shit, man. Oh, the Ryan, right, the Ryan Reynolds, Sam Jackson, Quibi series, Father Mucka. Well, motherfucker, it's going to be uh, Ryan Reynolds suffers some terrible accident and Sam Jackson becomes his primary caregiver. These two star in the Hitman's Bodyguard movies together. They're also both part of the MCU. It'd be cool to see them actually interact in an MCU movie sometime. Uh, this seems like a, a, you know, like a really fun idea for Quibi. I think everybody at Collider uh, was excited about it. Not that I don't even know who has Quibi anymore. I haven't, you know, resubscribed until the goddamn Fugitive starts back up or starts up. Um, but yeah, this is, you know, another high profile get just like Kevin Hart and John Travolta doing Die Hard. And they did send me screeners for that. Those are under embargo, but either way, I haven't started watching it. Um, SNL is going to be coming back with no audience. That's the right play. Uh, you know, we'll see if Lauren can even convince the entire cast to come back to New York. Um, I, I like the remote stuff. I, I feel like they did a good job rolling with the punches. And, and by that second at-home episode, they, they kind of figured out the kinks. That second episode was, I think, the, the best of the three that they did. I understand wanting to get everybody back together in the studio. I don't know if you can even have everybody in the studio together because of New York laws saying you can only have 10, 12 people or whatever it is in a given space at a given time. So maybe they'll have like, hey, this is SNL's A team, SNL's B team. Your A team's in the studio one week, B team is starring, you know, the following week. Maybe they'll cut down the hour and a half running time. Uh, 
maybe they'll fill it out with more music. I don't know, but it, you know, definitely interesting. And you're starting to see things come back uh, more and more. Um, a bunch of trailers this week. I think we talked about Possessor last week. I still think that looks great. There was a trailer for this Russian uh, creature feature, Sputnik, that looked like, you know, it really Scott's alien. Um, I think that looks really cool. I'm excited for the last NARC, the Amazon series about, uh, it's a docu-series about Kiki Camarena, who uh, may sound familiar to uh, Narcos fans. That, that was the character Michael Pena played. Megan Fox had a new trailer this week for this movie Rogue, where she hunts a bunch of lions. Seemed like she was a little out of her element in that one. Uh, Polly Shore came out with it, has a new movie coming out, Guest House, where he is the guest house, or, you know, like the, the house guest from hell, uh, but living in the guest house, I don't know, seemed stupid, but there was this, if you watch the trailer, there's a possum that is high on meth, and it was, it was a pretty, uh, pretty wild. Uh, and finally, Chucky, there was a little teaser for the Chucky series, come to USA and Sci-Fi, and I, you know, that looks like a blast. That, that is from the original uh, Child's Play team. Don Mancini's involved. Um, you know, not, not, nobody who, who did the, the recent movie with Aubrey Plaza. Uh, and listen, I, I'm a diehard Chucky fan, so I am almost certain I will check that out. We'll close the show with some mailbag questions. Derek Walker, uh, he, he was the one uh, kind enough to email me some questions last week. He said, I was wondering, how do you think this pandemic will affect the indie film industry? Will it make it easier for smaller films to get made because of smaller budgets? Or will studios focus on known franchises? Well, studios are always focused on franchises. We're talking about indies. So I think it'll be um, easier or, or harder. I think it'll be somewhat easier because you know, an indie movie doesn't require the same gigantic crew. Um, I think it's a lot easier to be safer making an indie movie, but at the same time, it's tougher. It's tough to get bonded. You know, insurance is going to be a big thing because you're not going to be able to get COVID insurance um, or it's going to be, you know, cost prohibitive to do so. And so if something does happen on an indie, you're kind of screwed. So, you know, there I, I should talk to more people in the indie sphere. I'd like to talk to more producers about how, you know, what they think, you know, will happen. I, I think it could be a great time for indies just because, you know, people are going to be hungry for, for content. They're, you know, given the, the shutdown right now, once the lights come back on, so to speak, people are going to want to get out there. You know, people have been writing scripts uh, and making scripts better. And um, I think it's going to be a fruitful time and, you know, if you look at the, the entertainment that came out after like the depression, it's going to, it's not going to be a lot of dark stuff. I don't, I don't think that people really want to tell too much, too many depressing stories. So there's going to be a wave of, of feel good uh, films, whether, you know, that's the studio's prerogative or, or the Indies take that upon themselves. Derek also asked, do I have a favorite composer? Personally, I love Hans Zimmer and Michael Giacchino. I know a lot of people call John Williams the best, but I've always thought a lot of his themes th- sound the same. Uh, I love Zimmer and Giacchino as well. Um, I love Clint Mansell. I love Cliff Martinez, the, the CM boys, as I call them. Um, yeah, I don't know that I have a, a, a favorite composer, but there are certainly people who I get excited seeing their names on stuff. Tr- I mean, Trent Reznor uh, and, his, and his partner are, uh, Atticus Ross are also guys where I'm like, oh, you, you can just tell what a Trent Reznor score feels like um, and sounds like. 
so yeah, I, I think those, those are all pretty good answers. Clint Mansell and Cliff Martinez do some really good work. And then Will Drajulis asked, is Ryan Gosling going to have time to film all these, these movies? This is, you know, we're circling back from what we talked about early on. He's got Wolfman, Project, Hail Mary, and the Russo Brothers movie. They all seem like they want to get started pretty soon. Um, what is going to be the priority there? I have no idea. It's a great question. I feel like it won't be Wolfman. I think Wolfman is going to be a ways off. Um, if I had to guess, it would be the Russo Brothers movie. That seems like it would go first, but you never know. You know, MGM could have first position um, with with the Project Hail Mary thing. I just don't know if there's a script ready for that. Whereas Gray Man, there has to be a script by now. That thing's been around for, for 20 years. So uh, I'm going to guess Russo Brothers first, followed by Project Hail Mary, followed by Wolfman. And that'll pretty much do it for this episode of the Snyder Cut, guys. Thank you so much for watching. Uh, make sure to, ch- ch- you know, like I said, check out Collider for all the, the fun Comic-Con coverage. Uh, order some cameos. I, I got to go film a cameo after this. So, so thank you uh, for, for uh, getting that one. And that goes out to Rish or Rish. I forget. To, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But uh, if you're a fan of the podcast, you're going to be getting something real soon. Um, that's it. Follow me on, at the Insider Instagram. I don't know, wherever the Insider is found. And make sure to check out the blog spot, guys. I am updating that with uh, some, some quick reviews. I think I'm, I am going to put that outcry review up there. Um, and then it's got the movie list. So you can always tell what I'm watching, when I'm watching it, and, uh, and whether it's any good. It's very helpful. Make sure to bookmark it. The Insider.blogspot.com. That'll do it this week, gang. For the Snyder Cut, thanks. Love you. Have a great weekend. The Drinkworks Home Bar by Keurig is the perfect gift or addition to a small gathering. The Home Bar makes over 30 drinks from cosmopolitans to old fashions at the push of a button. Just insert the pod, press start, and enjoy. Each Drinkworks pod contains real ingredients and premium spirits. For a limited time, get $50 off the Home Bar with promo code PLAY. Go to drinkworks.com to order now. Drinkworks, press play. Keurig is a registered trademark of Keurig Green Mountain, Inc., used under license. Please enjoy responsibly. Why do millions of Americans choose to sleep on Bolin Branch sheets? Is it the 100% organic cotton? Is it that they get softer and softer over time? Customers can't stop raving about these sheets, and there's no better time to try them for yourself or give them to someone you love. Right now, Bolin Branch is offering their best deals of the year, and you can get their incredibly soft sheets at incredibly low prices. Just go to bowlandbranch.com to shop their best deals today. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com today. See site for details.